J.T. Crowley is talking books. On the show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and I'm delighted to have joining me on my show today, Daryl Deliman from San Clemente in California in the United States of America. He's joining me to talk a little about himself and his book, Real Estate, Investing as a Lucrative Hobby and a Tax Shelter, Your Guide to Success in Generating Consistent Rental Income. So who is Daryl Deliman, everybody? Well, Daryl and his wife, Jacqueline, currently reside in San Clemente, California, in a home with a panoramic view of the Pacific Ocean. Wow, that sounds good, doesn't it, everybody? Daryl has recently retired from a major American company selling scientific lab equipment, and while Jacqueline continues to serve the community as a teacher. Daryl's hobbies include guitar, tennis, skiing, snorkeling, and a host of other outdoor pursuits. Dow spent the first two years of his education as a midshipman at the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. He then obtained a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry from the University of Miami, followed by a Master's in Chemical Oceanography at the University of Washington. And several years later, he was awarded an MBA at California State University Fullerton. So... You'll be justified in asking yourself, where does real estate fit into this global image of Daryl Deliman? Well, I think we need to ask him, everybody. So let's ask Daryl to come and join me on the show because it's getting pretty lonely here chatting to myself here. Daryl Deliman from San Clemente in the United States of America. Come and join me on the show. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me and uh, I look forward to explaining more about the book and uh, what motivated me and what uh, got us going here. So anyway, my father and grandfather were both you know, mildly invested in uh, uh, real estate, had uh, rental houses. And I kind of looked at that and said, uh, yeah, I can do that, but I think I want to you know, build it to a bigger scale. So uh, I, I pulled to get in a good income uh, selling laboratory equipment. You know, I'm, I'm a science geek. I certainly enjoyed what I did. You know, meeting with professors, laboratory managers, and that was something I enjoyed, you know, doing very much. And, you know, I, I pulled a good income that way. And as such, um, I would want to see what I could do to shelter the income. So, uh, you know, I'm in one of the heaviest tax states, California. Uh, so I wanted to see what I could do to shelter the income legally and then invest and build equity and eventually get to a situation of positive flow with the uh, rental houses. So started you know, we uh, uh, we intended to start slowly, but uh, we kind of jumped into it with uh, both feet. My brother, my dad, and I were all three involved in what we called Delinco Delman Investment Company, and we were fortunate enough to acquire uh, thirteen houses together uh, in one of these HUD um, you know HUD sales. So that got us started with those thirteen houses. So we were able to jump in with both feet at that. Um, at that point, uh, you know, as uh, many family partnerships do, we had divergent goals. So my uh, my brother and my dad kind of checked out, and I bought them out, and uh, kind of uh, expanded from there. 
Now, Daryl, when I look at the book, um, it's a pretty uh, comprehensive book, everybody. And um, the first couple of chapters in your book, under the headings, Getting Started, Selecting the Property and Negotiating the Asking Price, you start off by giving us a brief historical account of how this journey of real estate investing stems back to the mid-80s. As you've already said very briefly, uh, your father, Daniel, a retired school teacher who had some experience in owning rental properties, and then, of course, your brother, Dennis, being a real estate professional. Now, in these first three chapters, you talk about appreciation, tax relief, positive cash flow, foreclosures, geographic selection considerations, calculating, multi-unit variations. There's a there's an aspect, everybody. Listed properties, lower prices, building engineer inspections, and title searches. There's a whole host of things going on in these opening chapters, Daryl. Would you care to um, enlighten us? You know, because I've only just skimmed over this. Certainly, Please tell us. Uh, certainly. Um, what I'm trying to point out here, and I think is uh, uh, my uh, my friend and tennis opponent, uh, banker Bob Keenass, put in the foreword. Uh, what I'm trying to present here is the multifaceted approach of real estate investing. Uh, the example, I, the examples I give, um, you know, you can select the right property and get a good tenant. Uh, but if interest rates are too high and uh, uh, you in your in your your payments are too high, a uh, pitum is the uh, term that I used when I was in graduate school. Uh, principal, interest, uh, insurance, taxes, <clears throat> maintenance, and uh, management. Uh, if pitum is too high, and mainly that's going to be based on the interest rate and the mortgage you're paying and the, uh, the maintenance required on the house, then you're still in negative cash flow. So it's multifaceted. You want to get the best loan you can, you know, lowest interest rate when that's possible. And then from there, uh, there are other facets to it. Uh, selecting a good tenant, uh, you know, screening good tenants, because if you get somebody in, you know, what all of us landlords want are tenants that will uh, stay and pay, pay on time. Uh, so that's part of the selection. And of course, uh, the uh, the starting point is selecting a property in a growth area where in you know a year, two years from now, um, your property will increase by five, seven, 10 percent in value. Now, of course, there's a lot you can do to increase the value of the property to uh, improve it. Uh, there's some cosmetic things you can do it. In today's world, um, everyone is expanding with the ADU. Uh, the additional uh, dwelling unit. So in, you know, in my case, I uh, went to Tough Shed and we added an additional room to a couple of our smaller houses. In today's world, you can do more than that. You can uh, add, you know, multiple units uh, on the same property because uh, the movement is towards a, a, you know, the ADU um, additional dwelling units. So that's part of the that's pretty much what I'm what I'm trying to present here is the multifaceted approach so you've got to have select the right property financing get the get the best tenant and then maintain the tenants improve the property so you you've got to approach uh, all the aspects of it 
And, you know, when I looked at the book, Daryl, I think you did a very, very comprehensive um, view of that because I certainly learned a lot from it. Now, I know I live in the United Kingdom, so the rules and regulations over here are slightly different. And I know that this book right. is really aimed at the US market and particularly those who are looking to, you know, who are earning over 100,000 US dollars and above and are looking for um, tax shelters, legal tax shelters, and also to create some um, um, future investments and money as well. Because that's the whole concept of this book, everybody. But I want to go to, Dal, if you don't mind, there's a couple of chapters, you know, financing and selecting tenants, which I thought were very important. And that's why I've highlighted them. That's why I want to talk about them. You know, other people's money, you know, credit appraisals, interviewing tenants, agreements, and, you know, and your documents. And, you know, you've documented an interview with Kerry Spellman. So my question to you here, Daryl, is how important to prospective investors is the contents of these two areas in giving guidance and is a lot of what you say throughout the book taken somewhat by your own experiences in the profession? Uh, absolutely. Um, when I was selecting my own tenants, um, I would sometimes be a little bit too trusting. I wouldn't be, uh, uh, I wouldn't do the full screen. So as Carrie tells us in her book, or in, in the chapter of the book uh, that, that she uh, helped me write, uh, she has several different ways. I mean, you do the usual you know, property screening that you can. Uh, and then uh, she kind of surprised me. And the one, she always walks the person out to their car because she wants to look at the car. Because if your car is sloppy and dirty, then that's the same way you're going to keep the house or your apartment or whatever you're going you're gonna, to uh, uh, live in. So that's part of the aspect there. Um, I, I appreciate you bringing up the, uh, the the different approaches here, but yeah, the, the my target market here I think is uh, uh, a single person making over a hundred thousand or a couple making over a hundred thousand, and with long term plans of investing and building equity and then sheltering that income. Uh, different from the UK and most other tax situations, we have what we call depreciation. Uh, it's explained in the book and the in the chapter uh, where I did. Uh, the interview with uh, Don Saltikoff, my uh, IRS. He's been my IRS and my uh, uh, tax man for you know, many years, does my uh, tax returns for me. And he presents the depreciation concept. So basically, the concept is pretty simple. Um, <clears throat> you buy a property. You have land. It's, let's say the land's worth $100,000. Uh, the house on the land is worth 400000 Okay, so you can depreciate that house over 27 and a half years. So that takes that directly takes away from your taxable income. So this allows you to build in this direction so you can gain equity and you can also shelter your income. Oh, in doing this myself, you know, I was pulling a good income and I would be able to shelter it. I was tax exempt, which seemed to irritate uh, and um, I guess intrigue many of my colleagues. How was I tax exempt? Well, I had enough properties with this depreciation that I did not have to pay any taxes on it. Well, you know, it's a, it, it says like I'm, it says I'm not paying any taxes on it, but actually I'm paying property taxes. So uh, the taxman gets his bite one way or another. But uh, you know, it was it was taxes on you know property taxes on uh, on the houses. 
So in this way, I was able to shelter my income. I would have more income to invest and buy more houses. So that's what worked out in the uh, long-term plan. I love the story of the car. Oh, let's go and evaluate the clients and what their car looks like. So if you turn up an old rust bucket, <laughs> don't bother. You won't be getting a tenancy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a surprise to me. But uh, that was uh, cute. Carrie, uh, Carrie is, uh, you know, she's uh, very knowledgeable. She's been doing this a long time, so she's got her tricks, and he, she's got uh, the, the special things she's looked at. But uh, she's never gotten me anything but an excellent tenant. So uh, yeah, it helps to have uh, somebody else do this for you. So there you go. Turn in posh shoes. Get a posh car. You'll get a tenancy. We're not going any further. <laughs> Um, Daryl, let's move on. Let's take the listeners to chapters five and six, headed up care and feeding of tenants. Handyman, or do you want to take that urgent call? You start off by saying for landlords, good tenants are the lifeblood of our businesses. You cover issues around understanding tenant contracts, raising the rent, uh, paying the rent, eviction, pets, monitoring your property, and the benefit of good handymen. Would you care to expand you know, what you're talking about here and why you've put the subject matters in these two chapters? Because obviously they are very, very important. Otherwise you wouldn't put them in. I'm right, aren't I? Oh, certainly you're, you're, you're very correct in that, John, and I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, once you get the, the right tenant in your property, okay, um, they're always going to have demands. They're going to want certain upgrades and whatever, and you as a landlord have to decide, is this upgrade really worth it? Uh, will the next tenant at this property want this upgrade? Um, you know, there are certain, um, you know, uh, it seems like women always want kitchen remodels. Those can be very expensive. So you can do some of it, but maybe not all of it. But uh, so you do want to accommodate a good tenant. You do want to make upgrades that are of mutual benefit. That is, that will improve the property and will please the tenant. So those are some of the things you want to do for the, uh, uh, you know, for the tenant to, to, to maintain a good business relationship with them. Uh, the tenant contracts I talk about. Uh, there's a lot of things that people do wrong in tenant contracts. You've always got to have a late fee. If you don't receive the, uh, the rent by the 10th, um, you know, you, you need your money. You've got to pay mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. So you want your money on time and, you know, you can make a little extra money with the, with the late fee for tenants that uh, aren't keeping up. Um, beyond that, you know, uh, maintaining the property and keeping your, your tenant content. Um, I usually have a annual rent increase. Now, in this annual rent increase, um, you know, everybody understands inflation, uh, and this is part of inflation, uh, but also you want to justify uh, the rent increase. If you've done the improvements on the property, and you, you probably have, then you want to sit there and state that, yeah, we've, we've improved your property this much. Um, and also, I like to give a third source, usually Zillow or Redfin, that shows a uh, a proposed rent for the house. It's usually more than what I'm charging. I like to keep my rents maybe 5% under market so people have less tendency to move because turnover, of course, is the worst enemy of the uh, landlord. 
Uh, if you can keep a tenant in, staying and paying, that's what you're looking for. And many of my tenants now in the Inland Empire have been there 10, 15 years, okay? And they tolerate my annual rent increases that are somewhere around, somewhere between five and, you know, 9%. So, uh, but, you know, you, I, I like to write a letter and say, I appreciate your tenancy. Uh, we've made these improvements. Um, Zillow says that you should rent for 3000 And so I'm raising your rent to 2700 So, gee, you're, you know, you're getting a good deal. So those are part of the things that uh, we're, we're covering in you know, the, the care and feeding uh, of tenants. And also you have to maintain, you have to make sure they're maintaining the property. You have to show a presence you know, in the property. So I have my notices that uh, several of the tenants have complained about. So they're parking on the lawn. I'll get one notice on that. They're not taking care of the yard. I have another notice on that. And I'll, and I'll leave that with them. So that's part of just you know, letting, letting the tenant know that you're there, you're looking, you're not a remote landlord. So you are paying attention to the property. So uh, we like to maintain that sort of relationship. Um, going on from there, a handyman. Okay, I have enough properties that I have a full-time handyman. And, uh, you know, I don't want to take that, you know, a midnight call. Hey, uh, my water, my uh, water heater is broken. You know, he takes that call. That's part of his responsibility. You know, it doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, you know, somebody else is there to respond and uh, to do good work on, you know, on the property and hopefully try and get along well enough with the tenant, you know, because you're entering somebody else's property and, uh, uh, you know, quite often I have single mothers and, uh, you know, they're, they want to be real careful about that. So anyway, uh, having a good, uh, you know, full-time, uh, you know, uh, handyman has been very useful for me in maintaining the properties. I love the story about the, um, the, the kitchen and yes, you know, when you're selling a house, um, uh, an estate agent will tell you, um, if you want to sell a house, certainly over here in the UK, um, the bathroom and the kitchen and the en-suites and the bedroom very much appeal to the lady, you know, who's... And she will ultimately make the final decision, believe you me. Uh, right. Whereas the guy, it's probably the garage or it's something else and, you know, what's the rate and how much are you going to have to pay for this? So they come from two different schools. Uh, but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. believe you me, everybody, when it's buying a house, the lady makes the final decision. I know. <laughs> So, so let's go to, you know, I thought your, your approach about upgrading the property and all the issues that entails, you know, again, is very, very comprehensive. And as I said, we've already touched on this. I like the story of the lady who basically, she wanted a new kitchen. And, and you and Augusto agreed that the kitchen did need some updating. But what for me was a fundamental subject matter was your explanation of Section 8, Housing Authority. Mm-hmm. And you go on in here to talk about embrace or avoid. So in Chapter 8, the Housing Choice Voucher Programme. What's this about? And for me, um, surely ensuring you know, that the properties are maintained at a very high level leads to a happy client, which leads to a happy business, which leads to a successful rental income business. I'm right, aren't I? But talk to right. us about Section 8 here as well. Yes, uh, Section 8, I, um, uh, or 
Section 8 Housing Authority, or I use it uh, as my Chapter 8 specifically, um, there's several, you know, we get several different opinions on that. Depending on the area you're in, if you're in an upscale area uh, and you maybe have an apartment building or a triplex or something like that, and you put a Section 8 tenant in there, um, you're going to irritate everyone else and you, you, you can bring the property down. And the Section 8 tenants, you know, they're basically, you know, the words welfare, okay, however you want to put it, they're getting uh, government assistance. They have to apply for that and get accepted so they're getting a, uh, a government assistance there so if it's an upscale area chances are you want to avoid section eight tenants because it can you know drag the property down uh if you're in another area that might be a blue collar or you know almost slum or something like that then section eight might be the only way that you can you know get full occupancy on the property so you'll have to work with Section 8 and, and make it work. Now, there's good and bad to Section 8. Uh, obviously, since it's, you know, the government's involved, they're going to inspect and make sure that the unit meets their standards. Um, usually, the standards are reasonable, but sometimes they can ask you to uh, raise a wall or move, you know, uh, do some structural changes, in which case you'll say, thanks, I don't want your tenant. I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll get a uh, standard tenant rather than section eight tenant because I don't want to play by your rules. Uh, but usually their requests are reasonable and you can get a section eight tenant in there. With the section eight tenant, uh, section eight will usually pay most of the rent. The tenant pays a smaller portion. So, you know, it, it's, it's welfare and it's, it's supporting them. Uh, the plan usually works out pretty well because section eight usually pays top dollar. Uh, for the property. So you'll get, you know, you, you'll get your, your, your total rent. Uh, of course, section eight um, automatically pays you online and, you know, on the first of the month, that's great. Uh, then the tenant uh, is supposed to make their part, their portion of the payment uh, by the end of the month. Uh, I'm sorry, by the 10th of the month. So that usually works out. And I've had, you know, good and bad with, with section eight and, you know, many cases uh, uh, when we had, you know, down years in the Inland Empire, uh, I, I went to Section 8. I asked them, you know, I said, do you have any tenants? I, you know, I've got, you know, I've got several houses available here. Um, and then they, their, their, ten, their tenant would come over and apply. So the Section 8 has, has worked out, uh, you, know, you know, for us in, in many cases. But it depends on where you want to use that and where you, where you need to use it. Yes, I think it'd be fair enough to say that your um, real estate investment portfolio is you have to have a balanced um, clientele. Um, you're not going right. to get all wealthy um, tenants. You know, in life, you have to take a little bit of the rough as well as the smooth. Fair enough. Right. Uh-huh. Now, for me, Daryl, I think what you're talking about in Chapters 9 and 10, expanding your real estate portfolio and phases and tax benefit, are two pivotal areas. Uh, you touch upon financing options, low-risk plan, refinancing, uh, one, buying another, uh, save or borrow as needed, 20% deposit, uh, the four phrases of real estate investing. And under tax benefits, you have an interview with Don. Um, I do apologize if I forgot the pronunciation right. Salt Kioff, CPA, and you touch on IRS audits. And you also been tax exempt, expanding using the 
uh, Rossi Exchange. Now, can you just enlighten us here as to what you are talking about in these chapters, chapters nine and ten? Certainly. Well, uh, I think we've gone into the in previous chapters, we talked a little bit about uh, financing. So you, of course, want to you get the lowest interest rates you can. You want to maintain excellent credit on your own behalf um, so you can you know, get the best possible uh, uh, interest rate. Now, beyond that, uh, I offer Dean plan. Uh, Dean was a, a, my neighbor as a kid growing up, and we used to build forts together and the like. And you know, and his plan was was rather interesting, and we talked about it at our ten year reunion. What he and his he and his he and his wife both worked in the aerospace and defense in, industry, and they made very good money doing such. So they would buy one house in Torrance, and they would you know, and, and Dean was truly a perfectionist. He would put the best flooring in, the, the best you know, best wallpaper, the best uh, uh, upgrade everything because he, he liked doing that. Okay, and he was very good at it. Um, so he would do that. They would stay in one house for a year. Okay. They would maintain that. Like I said, they both made good enough money. So they would move to the next house. Okay. And they would do the same thing. So they would stay a year, year and a half in one house and then move on from there. This is what I call the Dean plan. Well, what's the key advantage there? Um, in financing. Okay. If you're owner occupied, you usually only have to put 10% down. Also, you usually get half a point better interest rate. So if you're owner-occupied, then you can buy this house, lower down payment, lower interest rate, and stay there a year and move on. Okay, uh, you can't, you know, in today's world, you can't get away with that for very long because the banks will catch on to you and, and see what you're doing, and they you know, won't give you the financing you want. But you can do it, you know, two or three times at least, or three or four times, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think Dean did, you know, Dean and his wife did it five times. So that's, that's one plan of expanding. Uh, what I had to usually had to use was I would refinance one house after it had, it had increased in value enough and then take the proceeds from there and buy uh, another property. So that was what usually worked out for me. So I would have excess income from my, uh, uh, from my employment selling you know, laboratory equipment and, then that combined with the income I would get from refinancing a house uh, easily gave me enough to you know buy buy more houses or w whatever I wanted from there. So that usually worked out you know quite well in, in expanding from there. But what was the uh, the other topic? Other question beyond expanding. So we have the IRS audits, you know, being tax exempt, and also uh, says your interview with Don. Um, Saltikov. 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 Okay. Have sure. I got it right? Uh, Don Saltikov. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's a very common name in Moscow. Uh, anyway, yes, uh, but Don's been here for several generations. So, yes, what, what uh, Don presents to us is, as we've mentioned earlier, um, the uh, being uh, tax exempt. Okay, as a real estate professional, uh, there are several requirements. Uh, to becoming tax exempt. So I would have to state and present that I spent more time in real estate than I spent in any other job. And I would have to have a minimum number of hours per year that I spent in real estate in order to qualify and be tax exempt. So, you know, it, uh, you know in, in my tough years, I was working, you know, easily 60 hours a week, 
between the real estate and then my you know nine to five job selling laboratory equipment. So that would show the benefit. Now, uh, one of the other ways of expanding property is the IRS uh, offers you a, uh, a 1031 exchange. So you sell one property, then you have 45 days to identify the property, the next property you're going to buy. And then you have 180 days to close escrow on it. Uh, in this concept, um, you don't have to pay the taxes from selling the, the one property. You can be tax exempt and pass that on. So, you know, eventually you're going to sell a property and uh, eventually, uh, you know, Uncle Sam will get his bite, but he at least allows you to pass this on uh, with the 1031 exchange. So it's it's uh, an excellent approach if you want to use that. But, you know, th those are the various different ways that you can uh, expand and expand your real estate network and uh, get better, get, get better cash flow, et cetera. I have to say, Daryl, um, when I was looking at your book, I know I thought, oh, chapter 11, I've got to include this in the interview, everybody. And, um, you know, we've got the, the short stories in this chapter, everybody, the antidotes, the, the, the SWAT teams, who should pay the trash bill, um, <laughs> property manager from hell, <laughs> your, and your pet is, yeah. um, and the handyman did what? And, the police shot my dog in the ass, trained cockroaches. This is a slightly different chapter, everybody. And I just think this is Daryl Dallyman putting a little bit of humour into what is a hard fact book. I'm right here, aren't I? This was you putting a little bit of humour in. Yes. Yeah. Why did you thank you for it? noting that, John. Why did you put I this say chapter thank you for in? noting that, John. <laughs> Well, when I was at, when I was in college at University of Miami, um, I used to write comedy for a, a stand-up comic who used to present at our at our shows there at University of Miami. So I've always had humor in you know in, in my veins. And uh, uh, my mother was a Irma Bombach type writer, and always wanted to inject humor in it. So I was always looking for humorous situations, and I was hoping to uh, amuse as well as uh, I guess inspire those. Yeah, we had a lot of fun, fun things that went on. I mean, uh, I think the SWAT team was the scariest one where uh, uh, we had a bad guy who uh, you know, wasn't supposed to see his daughter and he uh, snuck in to see his daughter and uh, did this at gunpoint. So <laughs> the SWAT team came in and kicked in doors and uh, uh, found him cowering in a uh, in a corner with his uh, 22 pistol. And of course, you know, when SWAT comes in uh, with all their uh, all their big guns pointed at him. So he, of course, gave himself up. But that was that was a strange one that cost me a couple of doors, but uh, that wasn't too terribly expensive. But, yeah, there's a lot of other, you know, fun occurrences that uh, that happened there. And one uh, long term real estate broker, she complimented me on that chapter. Also, she said, yeah, your anecdotes are worth the price of the book itself. So I, I certainly appreciated that. But, yeah, there's a lot of funny things that, that do happen along the way. And uh, a lot of strange stories you get from different people. I mean, the, the one about the trained cockroaches where one particular tenant wanted to complain about uh, Augusto and his team. And she, her, you know, she was probably a, a pretty uh, filthy housekeeper herself. So she had tons of cockroaches, you know, inside the house. So her claim was that uh, she didn't have the cockroaches. That Augusto and his team, when they came to do work on the outside, they brought the cockroaches. 
So I had a tough time you know, not laughing at her when she said that. But uh, anyway, so uh, I said, OK, I'll, I'll pay for a uh, I'll pay for the pesticide uh, once. And from there on, it's up to you. So anyway, that was yeah. You know, there are a lot of fun things happening. I, I do hope people will uh, appreciate to, and you know perhaps have some similar experiences in, in property management, and property owning. A little light-hearted humor, everyone, in this chapter. Now, the chapter partners, no, chapter 12, um, including spouses. For many, working with partners and spouses can be advantageous, but equally, it can be challenging or it can be a living hell. <laughs> How did you face up to the delicate matter of human relationships in your corporate world? and all the people that you've had to deal with whilst you, you know, doing this um, real estate journey? Uh, certainly. Well, first of all, ours was a family partnership, and, you know, my brother and I had divergent goals. Uh, he was in a position where uh, he, as a real estate broker, sometimes it was feast or famine. He would uh, uh, sell a property, get a good commission, uh, but then two or three months uh, he wouldn't have much. So he was always looking to flip houses, uh, a concept that I, I cringe at, you know, flipping houses. It can sometimes work for some people in, in certain uh, markets where the market is increasing greatly. And if you have a great deal of cash to play with, you know, it can work. But usually more often than not, it's uh, one fool selling to a bigger fool. Um, so that that quite quite often is a concept I like to avoid. But, you know, he and I went different directions for that reason. And, uh, you know, when dad uh, was just kind of there as uh, he was pretty retired, he was just kind of there as referee. So that had to go different directions. Beyond that, for partners, um, you know, if you're married, you, you know, you and your spouse have to agree, uh, you know, on a plan and the, where you're where you're going, because, you know, too often uh, someone has a short-term vision of it. You know, maybe they, again, have, have heard about people flipping houses and making quick money on it. Uh, and it does happen in some occurrences, like I say, but more often than not, it backfires. So, you know, you have to have, you have to set to, uh, agreeable, you know, goals with any partner you have, especially your spouse, so you can move on. You know, my wife and I have agreed that this has worked out for me. So we bought some additional houses together when uh, she and I married and, uh, They've worked out real well. So, and then of course, um, uh, you you know sometimes you know partnerships, other partnerships have worked out well for me uh, in that if somebody has some great handyman skills. I'm pretty useless in that area. I'm a white collar. Uh, so me too. Uh, me too. Know, so I've had a partner with a very good blue collar skills, so he can move in, improve the house, and then we have a plan, so we keep it a certain time and and sell it. So. You're also white collar and don't have those blue collar skills. So anyway, you know, that can work out. But, you know, the, the whole thing is with any sort of partnership, uh, you want to have uh, agreeable long term goals and possibly an exit plan. So, uh, you know, if things don't work out, I can buy you out for the, for this amount. Uh, and that way you don't have to go to court. You don't have to uh, battle further on it. You have an exit plan you know, drawn up. Um. I get the impression, Daryl, that if you're going to go into this type of business, you've got to really take the the long road, the long view. It's not a quick, short job, is it? 
Uh, no, certainly not. Um, you know, uh, uh, if you want, if you're looking for quick profits, maybe try the try the uh, the stock market. Uh, but to really make a uh, a real estate investment plan work in all of its you know divergent uh, advantages, you know the tax advantage as well as uh, uh, equity gain as well as positive cash flow, it's a long term plan because as I've mentioned, I can raise my rents usually between uh, seven and nine percent a year, so that's going to get me in better better cash flow position. Uh, real estate, especially in California, is going to go up in value. So you're going to build equity. But, uh, you know, if you're ex expecting this all in one year, two years, um, yeah, you might be disappointed. You know, sometimes it works out. But usually, you know, a five, 10 year plan is more what you're looking for for real estate investing. You know, mine was, you know, uh, certainly uh, many years, 30 or 40 years to uh, uh, become this successful. A couple of uh, divorces along the way didn't help me. Oops, I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, anyway, uh, so on from there. Go, go ahead. Moving on from partner relationships. Um, let's uh, let's take the um, the audience to the contents of the last two chapters in the book, chapters 13 and 14, minimizing losses when facing the inevitable downturn, because you're going to get the downturns, everybody and trends of your um, friends. You cover off in this section overextended financially, uh, COVID worldwide effects, real estate crash 2008, local economies and macro economies, affordability index, who is building, how many units, where and why, flipping houses, which we've all briefly touched on, uh, buying uh, foreclosures, adding um, ADU, affordable housing, government banning evictions, WhatsApp. A lot of powerful punches you've packed in these last two chapters. You are packing punches in this book right to the bitter end. Um, okay. Yes. Um, minimizing losses at the downturn. So the whole plan is... Uh, you, you're going to hit some bumps in the road. There's going to be uh, some reversals in real estate where real estate will you know, decrease in value. Uh, maybe there's a local or a nationwide um, uh, economic downturn. So what do you do in these cases? Uh, I was you know, quickly overextended in my real estate plan. So I had to go back to the banks and say, hey, I, I can't afford this property. I, I want to give it back to you. Uh, and, you know, so I would try and avoid foreclosure and do a, uh, you know, deed in lieu of foreclosure. So sometimes that works out. And, you know, other times, uh, so, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, you would have enough cash uh, assets uh, to back you up, and, you know, through these downturns um, or maybe have a parent or someone else or someplace else where you could get a short term loan or get a loan to carry you for a few years in, in these downturns. You know, sometimes that works out. Sometimes you have to give properties back. Uh, in the, the huge downturn of 2008, which uh, I, uh, I blame on uh, reckless banking practices, and I, I think a, a lot of others have uh, uh, kind of joined me in that, that opinion. Uh, the only, my only answer to that, my only possible answer, was uh, the Chapter 11, uh, which is the um, business uh, uh, bankruptcy. So in that, uh, you know, I went to the bankruptcy attorney. So we saw we saw which houses 
uh, I wanted to return to the banks and we saw which houses I wanted to keep as is. And then others, I had to go back to the banks and say, yeah, we have to restructure these loans or, you know, basically the word is crammed down the loans. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, in this case, you know, Wells Fargo and some of the others were ready to work with me on this because they didn't want to take all the cat, all the houses back. They already had too many houses they were having to take back. So they would work with me on this. So basically the way it worked, let's say I owed uh, 200000 on a house. The value had crashed, so it was now worth uh, 120000 So we would go back to the bank and say, uh, let's cram this loan down to 100000 Okay, uh, so that worked out, and I was able to write off a great deal of debt uh, in this manner. So that was, uh, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, the, the, one of the several approaches to to the downturn. I mean, I think that's the ultimate approach, and one you certainly don't want to use, and you can't use often. But the Chapter Eleven is bankruptcy is uh, a possible option. You know, when you were writing this book, how long did it take you? But um, but did you learn anything yourself? You know, pick up new things, pick up new strategies. Um, yes, certainly. I mean, uh, uh, I borrow a term from the stock market. Uh, you know, friend. You know, trends are your friends. So in that, I you know, I kind of made myself study the area more carefully. Say, okay, in what area are you know are you know, are people planning on expanding, doing more businesses, um, expanding in houses, expanding in uh, industry and other areas? And, you know, I, I refer to a, a friend of mine who used to invest in Southern California. And I, he was a friend and a, you know, a colleague and a competitor, actually, on uh, houses. And uh, he was transferred to, to Chicago. And he found uh, an area where there was a big um, auto plant that was going to be built in this smaller city. So that's what I mean, you know, friend, you know, trends are your friends. So he saw this trend. So they were going to be needing a great deal more housing in this, you know, moderate sized city in the Midwest in order to accommodate all the new workers for this new upgraded uh, auto plant. So he began investing there. So that was the trend that he observed. So it gave me a little more insight and, you know, let's take a look when to invest and when an area is going to be expanding and then find the uh, expansion and the justification for it. Would you do anything different, Daryl? You know, when you first started to do this, would you do it differently? When you uh, yes, back? that's part of when you look back. I, I, I appreciate the question. I mean, I think that would be best identified in the uh, chapter on partners. Hmm. Um, you know, it, you know, as I mentioned, I think if uh, uh, my brother and I, dad, my my brother, my dad, and I could have written out our goals and been agreed on where we were going, chances are we could have done much better together. Um, and then I, I had to take it from there. Um, beyond that, um, you, you know. Uh, uh, spouses. Well, there's not a whole lot you can say about that, but um, I think that would be, uh, you know, I do point out some of the things that I I did here that I think were mistakes. Uh, I expanded too quickly. I had too many houses, so I very quickly, uh, you know, after a few years, I had to go back to the banks and say, hey, I want to give this uh, house back to you. I've got more houses than I can afford. We've got a downturn here in the economy in the Inland Empire, so uh, that would be one where I shouldn't have expanded as fast as I did. 
and that was too much too fast and the economy turned the other direction on I do point out some of my mistakes uh, in this area and things that uh, I, I could have done and I, I suggest to others that they uh, make a more gradual you know gain in real estate rather than uh, jumping in too quickly with too many properties who do you want to see reading your book you know who are you aiming you know the market for with this book uh fine good question john appreciate that um i'm thinking um an individual who might be making more than um a hundred thousand or a couple who might be making uh you know together more than a hundred thousand a year wanting to shelter that income but then also wanting to invest build equity and finally, to get in a position of early retirement with positive cash flow from the rental properties. So that's pretty much the the, the, the people I'm uh, addressing my book to. And a lot of that comes from uh, you know, my many years when I was working uh, with the with several different uh, excellent companies in scientific equipment. And people all, were always curious about you know, why was I tax exempt? What am I doing? Is it legal? And you know, how do I do it also? So this is kind of advising to them. This is how you can make this plan work. And, you know, I, I do uh, put some restrictions in there. I mean, uh, I do say in an ideal world, you'd like to be within an hour's drive of your property because I make the point, uh, you know, who's going to uh, take advantage of or cheat the remote landlord? Well, just about everyone. The tenants, if they don't think you're, t- you know, uh, supervising the property, they'll, uh, they'll junk it up. Um, you know, handyman. If you're not going to inspect the work that they do, uh, they'll charge. They'll, char- they'll charge you. I just had a problem with that just last week, um, you know, being overcharged by an electrician. Um, so you know, it, it goes. It goes on. But those are some of the suggestions that are made in the book. Where can people get your book from? Uh, Amazon, um, just about anywhere. You know, and then of course, you know, Author House directly or. Uh, Amazon. So yes, please take a look. It's uh, available in uh, you know various different versions and uh, the ebook as well as the uh, uh, soft co- you know soft cover. And uh, this is the uh, hard copy. I, I of course have and I give out to uh, friends and colleagues. There you go, everyone. What well, it's an interesting book, and if you want to go and look into the area of real estate uh, rentals, have a look at Dale's book. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you're in the world. Until next time, stay safe.